new season for Butterfly Let's Talk. I'm Sam Iken, and welcome to season four. Medications have been historically unhelpful in treating eating disorders. We're kicking off this year with drugs, not the illegal kind. I'm talking about prescribed medical pharmaceuticals. This episode is an investigation into how medications can help in recovery from eating disorders. As a kid with an extremely negative body image, I often wondered if the pharmaceutical industry would one day create a drug that could magically make my body normal. In hindsight, that was a little bit far-fetched, but researchers around the world are working really hard, particularly in the area of eating disorders. We're a group of small, a small group, but getting larger of neuroscientists. And we have a particular focus on behavioral neuroscience and psychopharmacology. Dr. Claire Foldy is a senior research fellow and laboratory head at the Biomedicine Discovery Institute at Monash University. Essentially, how the brain controls behaviour and how this might be mediated by neurochemical signalling. Basically, what we want to do in the lab is to uncover the mechanisms in the brain that cause eating disorders. She was at a conference in New York when we managed to get a hold of her. Basically, what we do in the lab is animal research. So we look at causal brain behaviour relationships. It's a behavioural model where rats or mice, when given time-restricted access to food, paired with a running wheel, um, a proportion of them will choose to run instead of eat when that food window is available. This is fascinating from a, an evolutionary biology standpoint because laboratory rats and mice don't have the psychosocial pressures to, to choose to exercise over, over feeding, but they do this even though it's completely detrimental to their health and well-being. We've started using the model um, to essentially replicate things that have been shown in human imaging studies, for example, where different parts of the brain respond differently to food reward in, in individuals with eating disorders. Dr Foldy's one of a few pioneers researching a new alternative approach with a substance that's been around for centuries. The chemical that we're most interested in talking to you about is psilocybin, which is the one that we know commonly from, from magic mushrooms, I guess. It's a psychedelic. Yeah. Why are you looking at that? Well, I guess there's two main reasons. The first is that medications have been historically unhelpful in treating eating disorders. Um, you know, there are, there are medications that treat associated symptoms, depressive tendencies and thought disturbances and that stuff. Um, and some evidence for um, Vyvanse, the stimulant medication that was originally approved for ADHD but is now approved for binge eating disorder. But nothing really treats, no medication is particularly good at treating core symptoms. You know, the food restriction or binge eating itself or the thinking that goes along with disordered feeding behaviour. And this is where psilocybin might come in. And I guess the second part of why I'm interested in, in psilocybin, not just as a therapeutic but more broadly, is that, you know, I have a fairly long-standing interest in consciousness and the conscious experience. And so I'm fascinated in how a compound that's found naturally in mushrooms, that we evidence for human use dating back potentially as far as 1500 BC, um, can change the way that people think about their behaviour and changing the way a person thinks could really have an impact for eating disorders. So it's not something that's approved at the moment yet. We're still in the development phase. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think part of that is because right now we don't know that much about how these types of compounds 
affect our brain. We know a few things. You know, we know that psilocybin has effects on the serotonergic system, so the, the molecule neurotransmitter in our brain um, that's sort of been classically associated with depressive tendencies, I suppose, but is also known to be um, dysregulated in eating disorders. Um, and we know that psilocybin has some effects on turning off mm, different connectivity in the brain, so different parts of the brain that are normally highly connected psychedelics can disrupt that connection and so potentially this is the way that it you know has effects on on uh, uh, the ability to think about things differently um but besides that we don't know so much about how psilocybin might act and, and specifically for people with eating disorders so how's the research going and what i mean by that is what stage do you think you're at we're already in clinical trials at four different sites around the world of psilocybin with specialised psychotherapy for anorexia nervosa. And there's, you know, really promising results coming out of the depression trials. So patients with major depressive disorder seem to have long-lasting symptom improvements after psilocybin therapy. And it's plausible that there will be equally, um, you know, promising results from the clinical trials in anorexia. But it's still the case that we... We don't have a good understanding of how it acts in the brain, and so we don't know whether it will be specifically ben beneficial for some individuals over others or whether it could be particularly risky for specific people. It is a drug that has unpredictable effects. This is a good opportunity to bring in an old friend of the podcast, Professor Richard Newton, who's a professor of psychiatry, and he's been working in eating disorders since the 1980s. Some people have really quite traumatic trips on it. Professor Newton's not so upbeat about psilocybin because of the unpredictable effects that it can have. They hallucinate. It, it, you know, they have a bad trip. They're sufficiently common and the bad trips are sufficiently traumatic for me to think that that is a significant issue in terms of how many people does it take to get better? How many people does it take before somebody has a really quite harmful experience that may make things worse. Dr. Foldy accepts there's a slight chance of people having a bad trip, but she says that in future, they hope to get to a point where that isn't such a problem. As far as I know from the medical research and clinical research, people that are advocates for psychedelics will say at this stage in the clinic with appropriate support and appropriate preparation and integration, there are no adverse effects. I think that there may be a potential for things to go wrong in a context, if, if these drugs are taken in a context that isn't well supported psychologically. There's a very small risk of longer-term perceptual disturbances so there's a con condition that has an acronym that I can't recall, but it's essentially persistent hallucination, and it's been at least documented in some cases. Um, although I wouldn't say it's common, there is the potential if you have whatever the underlying predisposition for this might be, um, a, a small chance of a longer-term perceptual change. There are lots of researchers around the world who are working on modifying the psilocybin molecule to make it shorter acting with fewer side effects. So in the future, the idea of what we call a trip 
may not even be part of the process. At this stage, it's not something that's available to everyone. Clinical trials are sort of biased in so much as you can be admitted to a clinical trial only if you meet very, very strict inclusion criteria. And so the positive effects that we're seeing is in a really biased subpopulation of individuals with either major depressive disorder or anorexia nervosa. You can't have any real comorbid clinical diagnoses or you're excluded from the study. So I think right now um, I would not advocate for people to, to try it. But again, you know, I think there's a lot of people with eating disorders who are, uh, you know, desperate for treatment. And um, so, you know, I think there's there's risks, but there's potential benefits. Um, and if you've tried everything else with no success, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. You don't sound too concerned about that. What do you think is the most significant risk? The biggest risk is unmet expectations. And so all of the hype in the media about the, this new miracle drug, I think that that's the biggest risk because people might approach clinical trials or psychotherapy with psychedelics as this miracle cure when, you know, it doesn't work for everyone, not even in this very biased clinical trials population. There's a, you know, somewhere between 30 and 50% success rate. While it's not a psychedelic, there's also been some evidence that the drug ketamine could also be helpful in the treatment of mental health disorders, including eating disorders. Okay, so personal confession, Sam. I, 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 I had an operation some time ago. And they had to stop my heart and restart it. Wow. And in order to do that, they gave me some ketamine. And, and I woke up from this experience and 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 I knew that I was getting it. I want, so I wanted to be really ready for it. And so I woke up trying to analyze what the hell I was experiencing. It was a complete absence of dysphoria. I had no anxiety, no depression, but no intoxication. You know, I didn't feel high. I didn't feel intoxicated. It, but for the, possibly the first time in my entire life, I didn't have anxiety or depression. It was wow. extraordinary. That's it lasted about ten minutes, but you know it was still pretty good while it lasted. Is that how it works for eating disorders? That it helps someone to forget that they're unhappy or uncontent, uh, or in other words, to forget their dysphoria. In depression and anxiety, long particularly treatment resistant depression, people often require repeated, prolonged courses of ketamine. People argue, well, it's no different to taking an antidepressant long term. And you go, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, okay, it works. So, so again, cautious research. If the research is supportive, let's use it. Okay. But cautious, well-planned research with a curious inquiry of the individuals taking the drugs, how does this, you know, does the, has this contributed to you feeling better in a way that is meaningful to you? Another medication we've come across a lot through the course of this podcast is a common type of antidepressant medication. But as Professor Newton explains, the dosage is vastly different to what you would take for depression. So-called SSRIs, the serotonin-specific reuptake inhibitors, which essentially uh, have as a common characteristic improving serotonin uh, uh, concentrations in the brain neurons. God help me for saying, I hope none of my psychiatrist colleagues hear me say this, because that's <laughs> not how they work. 
Um, but they do have that common feature. Um, uh, uh, then, then, then they all seem to have an effect at high doses. And, and I emphasize high doses. You're really talking about three to four times the antidepressant dose of these drugs before they have a really effective anti-bulimic effect, anti-binging effect. And they seem to both reduce binging by having an effect both on hunger and satiety through okay. a, a, an effect on a particular part of the hypothalamus, which is a part of the brain. Most of what we've talked about so far has been focused on anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa. But what about some of the other diagnoses? There's been this explosion of investigation of medications for binge eating disorder. If you think about binge eating disorder, and, 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 and there's an overlap with bulimia nervosa, as I'm sure you would yes. see. Yes, yes. Um, uh, the, in binge eating disorder, the kind of two targets are to try and reduce binging, but also to try and reduce weight. Uh, and, and, and certainly drugs that reduce binging, like uh, the SSRIs, have not really had a big take-up in binge eating disorder because they don't have a particular effect on, on weight. Right. But what we've now seen in binge eating disorder is this uh, bleed, if you like, this kind of overlap with ADHD, uh, where the formulation for binge eating disorder would run something along the lines of one of the factors that contributes to people binging is uh, impulse control. So let's try an ADHD drug. The brain is responsible for all of our behaviours. So whether that be through internally generated thoughts or in response to things in your environment. Dr. Christy Griffiths is one of the leading researchers in the use of the drug Listexamphetamine dimesylate, which if I've said that wrong, is also sold under the name Vivance, which has traditionally been used to treat ADHD. I'm a senior researcher at the Inside Out Institute for Eating Disorders. And this is a joint venture between the Sydney Local Health District and the University of Sydney. Typically, when we seek out food, it's because of hormones circulating in our, in our bodies that tell our brains that we're hungry. Or it could even be um, through learned habits of knowing that this is your typical mealtime. So also to most people, food is quite enjoyable. And we might also um, eat because our brain tells us that it's a rewarding experience, even if we're not hungry. Um, so sometimes for people with eating disorders, there is a dysregulation between the physical systems that tell us what our body needs, the reward systems and the inhibitory control systems. And a push and pull between all of these systems can, within our brain can result in over or under eating, um, as well as many of the psychological symptoms of eating disorders that people often feel like guilt or distress. So what about medication? Do you think as, as an expert in this field that medication should be part of treatment for eating disorders? So that is a, a tricky one to answer, and it, it's quite controversial. Um, so for binge eating disorder, um, psychological therapies are the first-line um, treatment. And even for uh, the people who developed Vyvanse for binge eating disorder, they also say that it should only be used in the event that psychological therapies have not been effective or that they haven't been accessible. So there's always a push towards psychological therapies being used first, um, and they are relatively successful in around 60% of people. However, for some people, it may be that medications are a better option. And um, I guess that comes down to that individualised medicine, trying to figure out if there's anything that we can 
identify within that person to say, this is someone that will do well with medication as opposed to psychological therapies as a first line. In the interest of full transparency here, I've recently been diagnosed with ADHD, like so many other people my age, who had no idea it could even affect adults. My psychiatrist said it was linked to my binge eating disorder, which I'd known about for years. I was diagnosed maybe 10 years ago. So he prescribed Vyvanse, which I've been taking for a couple of months now. So far, the effects have been positive. But I was really keen to see if Dr Griffiths had some data on how effective it was for everyone else. With ADHD, if people stop taking the ADHD medication, even for a day or two, their symptoms return. But, I mean, there has been one study, actually, that has looked at the the longer-term effects um, of Vyvanse and binge eating disorder. So they got a bunch of people who had been um, responded well to Vyvanse over a 12-week trial, and then they randomised them to either continue Vyvanse or to switch to a placebo. Um, and then they recorded the relapse rates that occurred over the next six months. Um, what they found was that of the people who continued taking Vyvanse, around 4% of them relapsed, which is a pretty low rate. Yeah. Um, for those that switched to placebo, um, around a third of them relapsed. Okay. So I guess the good news there is that there were two-thirds of them that didn't. So after six months of being off of Vyvanse, they were still, um, you know, binging less than twice a week. Are there any other medications that have been as successful with binge eating disorder or do you know of any that perhaps we haven't heard about yet that researchers are working on? I haven't seen anything that appears beyond Vyvanse. There's other things that are maybe have slightly less um, research behind them. Um, typically, it's a range of medications that are used for other disorders that have been applied to binge eating disorder. Um, something that is used for some people is Topiramate, which is an anticonvulsant medication that some people find useful with binge eating disorder. Obviously, there are the other stimulant medications. The weight loss ones that you mentioned is another thing that's you know very um, hot topic in the media at the moment. Um, but it really does depend on what your your goal is, your outcome, because if you direct your outcome to be weight loss, it's not changing the psychological processes that have led to that weight loss. So you really need to f- think about what it is that you want to target. And I think starting with the impulse control around food, that is really where you want to start um, yeah. to have that effect. So tell me some lab coat stuff about Vyvanse. How does it work? It is a medication that um, works primarily through dopamine and it acts on trying to help impulse control and um, enhance attention, so sustained attention. So the core um, features of ADHD. And it also happens that, you know, the impulse control is something that there's a lot of overlap with for Vyvanse. So a lot of clinicians were using it off-label for binge eating disorder in people where they saw that impulse control was an issue. Uh, so, so does it mean that, and we know there's a lot of co-occurring or co-occurrence rather of binge eating disorder and ADHD, does that mean that those two things are clo- more closely linked than we thought? Possibly. And that's what I'm interested in, I guess, is um, trying to use a bit of a data-driven approach where we sort of just look at the brain and how it's functioning, throw away the labels, throw away the diagnostic labels and sort of see if we can cluster people based on the symptoms that they're experiencing 
and then try to find medications that that fit that profile. And I think you know you do see a lot of overlap in in ADHD and binge eating disorder in in a lot of the symptomology. Almost ninety percent of the people who have a binge eating disorder diagnosis also have been classified as obese at some point in their lives. We know that size discrimination, which is inescapable in most parts of the world, increases the likelihood of developing an eating disorder. So does that mean that weight loss drugs like semiglutide, which is also sold under the label Azempic and Wagovi, could play a part in eating disorder prevention? Obesity has been, and morbid obesity, and the treatment of that has been really extraordinary. You know, there's a big public health interest in uh, mm. addressing uh, uh, obesity, as you, I'm sure, are aware, but gastric banding and very yeah. low calorie diets and all of this have had their moment in the sun in terms of showing some effect and having some effectiveness over the long term in this treatment. Semaglutide de- delays gastric emptying, decreases appetite by decreasing food and, and decreasing food intake and changes the way that the body handles energy through a variety of effects on insulin and other other effects. Diets haven't worked. Diets don't work in people with overweight, but semaglutide, you know, even at uh, 68 weeks, it's still showing uh, persistent weight loss. As long as you're still taking it. So long as you're still taking it, of course. And so once you stop taking it, and it's it's also very expensive, and it's a weekly injection, right? Follow the money. Is that what you're suggesting, Sam? Well, no, no, no. I'm not. I, but, but yes. Let's do that. Let's go there if you want. But I, I'm saying it, this for me seems like any other crash diet that you know any other obese person has been on. Um, and I know lots of people who are in my situation who have been able to sustain a, a really long time of super low calories. But you can't do it forever. And you this can't is do this it for me. This looks very similar to that kind of thing. I mean, it's different different in that you're not starving yourself. You're not consciously restraining in the way that you have to do with a, with a, a, any kind of calorie-reduced diet where every single meal you, you have to make active decisions about it, whereas with semaglutide, the decision's made for you by your body. You're absolutely right. All of these medications that I've been talking about, they only work as long as you take them. Binge eating disorder, as we know, is the most common eating disorder. It seems to me that if you follow the money, then you can see as soon as it became apparent that there was a diagnosable disorder uh, that affected a large percentage of the population, all of a sudden there was pharmaceutical interest in finding treatments for it. All of a sudden, Vyvanse, you know, Listex amphetamine, uh, is being approved. Uh, naltrexone bupropion is being approved. And you only have to prescribe to a small percentage of people who have binge eating disorder for these drugs for huge profits to be made. Obesity and binge eating disorder are dissociable things. Absolutely, um, yes. But, you know, you have people who go to get gastric bypass surgery and whatnot, but if they have binge eating disorder, this is a really a short-term measure. It, it won't work. They're going to keep binging and sort of not have effect from that down the track. So it's definitely something that needs to be addressed first. The medications that are most commonly prescribed for eating disorders are also associated with other mental health conditions. Commonly prescribed ones are antidepressants like selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs, atypical antipsychotics, anti-anxiety medications, mood stabilizers, including lithium and anticonvulsants, and stimulants like the ones prescribed for ADHD. 
Uh, so I was diagnosed with an eating disorder um, when I was 11 years old. We've heard a lot from scientists so far, but I think it's time for us to bring in someone who doesn't wear a lab coat to work. I am Emma. Um, I am 28 years old. I always have to think about that for a little while, which is concerning. Um, but I am uh, a peer support worker in an eating disorder day program. Um, I also just finished a uh, university double degree that took me far too long, but who's counting the years really? I was incredibly anxious as a child. I was also very perfectionistic and I also grew up in a bigger body uh, and was bullied for that. So um, by the time I was 10 years old, those factors culminated and I ended up um, seeking help from a pediatrician to lose weight um, because weight loss in children was very much encouraged back in the early 2000s. And so I ended up losing some weight and then um, it all sort of cascaded and uh, those perf that perfect storm of factors really did just sort of um, collide and I ended up um, being diagnosed with an eating disorder. Emma's experience in battling her eating disorder is unique, as all journeys are, but there are some points that others will certainly be able to relate to. After I'd been um, admitted into a, a psychiatric admission, I... Um, was started on antipsychotics. Um, so I started on one particular antipsychotic and that sort of antipsychotics are used quite frequently in eating disorder treatment. From a child, I was hospitalized in a medical setting and then um, transferred to a psychiatric setting. Um, I had quite a bit of outpatient um, treatment with a treatment team. Um, and then uh, I ended up in a day program when I was quite young, when I uh, graduated high school and I had my last and probably longest relapse. Um, I ended up um, having impatience days, so psychiatric impatience days as an adult. My first uh, research position was uh, investigating the use of fluvoxamine in the treatment of bulimia nervosa in combination with cognitive therapy, and that was way back in the 1980s, wow. just as a, a set, a, set a scene for some of our discussions about pharmacotherapy of eating disorders today. Fluvoxamine is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, often sold under the brand name of Luvox or Fabrin, and it helps eating disorders by reducing obsessive thoughts and compulsive behaviours which are associated with food while stabilising mood and reducing anxiety. If you look at the evidence base, which is kind of what academics do, and that's yeah. part of the difficulty of having somebody like me on your podcast, is that I keep going back <laughs> to the evidence. Stop it. it. Fluvo fluoxetine and fluvoxamine are still probably have 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 a, a, the the best evidence, and that there's still certainly both of them uh, uh, part of any clinical practice guideline recommendation, particularly, of course, fluoxetine. There's uh, quite a lot of medications that have been approved for bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. The story is not the same for anorexia nervosa, but olanzapine is still really the uh, the only uh, medication that's got a, a really kind of consistent signal. There's lots of other drugs that have been put up that uh, people have hoped might be effective either in helping people uh, recover from anorexia nervosa or helping people stay recovered but actually not many of them have really held up over, over repeated use. 
Olanzapine is used to treat schizophrenia and bipolar disorder by affecting brain chemicals that control mood and behaviour. It belongs to a class of drugs called atypical antipsychotics. As Emma experienced, doctors will prescribe the medication they think will work best. But different people have different experiences, so finding the right medication can be a frustrating task. I think I was first prescribed some sort of psychiatric medication when I was 14 years old. Um, I was prescribed antidepressants. Um, and at the time, I was very glib about it. And I was like, well, you'd be depressed too if you're in hospital being forced to eat. Um, looking back on that, I'm like, however, oh, you were depressed. Um, so it helped. And that sort of kind of showed 14-year-old self that actually, no, there was something chemically not quite right there. Um, so I was first exposed to meds in that setting. After I'd been um, admitted into a, a psychiatric admission, I um, was started on antipsychotics. Um, so I was started on one particular antipsychotic, and that sort of antipsychotics are used quite frequently in eating disorder treatment. Antipsychotics are prescribed for eating disorders to help manage symptoms such as obsessive thoughts or distorted perceptions of body image, which can be present in conditions like anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa. They can also help stabilise mood and reduce anxiety. It sedated me to an incredible extent. For a time there, I don't think I had a single thought in my head, um, apart from perhaps what I was eating, what I was eating next. It didn't do what it was supposed to do in terms of, or it may have, it may have dulled the eating disorder thoughts, but it dulled everything else. Um, and it left me, yeah, very tired, not being able to engage in the treatment I was in um, because I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And I wasn't able to engage in life, which was probably the more important part there, that to recover, you need to be able to re-engage with life. And this medication had left me with no ability to do that whatsoever. I was sort of titrated off that first one and titrated onto the second. And it was just far less sedating for me, um, which was the first huge plus. But the second one was it actually did help not get rid of the thoughts, but sort of make them less adhesive, like less sticky. I was able to sort of acknowledge that there was an eating disorder thought and then there was a choice as to whether to follow it or not. Whereas beforehand, I think it felt like there was an eating disorder thought and then there was the behaviour straight away. It took Emma a while, but eventually she found a medication that helped her. So while it sounds like treatments for anorexia nervosa are limited, Professor Newton is upbeat about some other potential treatments. Coming up in the anorexia nervosa field, I think that there's a, a, a reawakening of interest in biological treatments. And so there's some nice research coming out about cannabinoids, so synthetic cannabis-type products that actually might have some promise in people with severe and enduring anorexia nervosa, which would be super to, to see. Cannabinoids can have a lot of physiological effects on the body, one of which is referred to as the munchies, or increased appetite that many people experience when they use marijuana, for example. It triggers the parts of the brain that play a role in the way we smell and taste our food. It can lead to signals of hunger, even if the body isn't hungry. There are a whole range of medications. You know, we did a trial about seven years ago now on oxytocin, 
and oxytocin is a drug that's released by mothers as they give birth, and it helps the mother bond with the baby. And so the idea behind using oxytocin was people with anorexia nervosa particularly are extraordinarily hard on themselves, really quite hard and unkind, you know, not even thinking that they're worthy of having food in their mouths and eating. Wow. This was the hypothesis. And, and so uh, giving, uh, using oxytocin to help people to nurture themselves. Both when I was on the antidepressants when I was younger and also with this second medication, there was a huge focus um, from my team to, as I sort of touched on before, re-engage with life and sort of acknowledge and recognise that there was life outside of my eating disorder, especially when I was an adult because my eating disorder had sort of shrunk my world down to just, you know, the four walls of a, a, a treatment setting or just like my bedroom at home. Um, and it felt very insular and safe. And a huge part of it was, yeah, actually going beyond those four walls and realizing that there's a life out there and I was missing out on a lot. Um, so in that regard, I was always encouraged to, you know, try and catch up with friends um, or, for me, study was a huge part of th everything because I acknowledged early on that I couldn't study unless I was somewhat or hopefully fully nourishing my brain. To anyone listening who's perhaps considering medication or has been suggested to them, um, try, to, try to put some space between you and any shame or any judgment and know that psychiatric medication is the exact same as any other type of medication that we need for our health. Um, also, try and trust the process a little bit. I know that's very hard, especially for us with eating disorders to trust, but um, we kind of can't see the effects of something until we give it a good go, especially with medication. It takes some time for it to build up. It takes some time for it to show itself. Um, so try and trust your treatment team and also be really communicative with your treatment team as much as possible that if something doesn't feel right as well, try and advocate for yourself, but also try and differentiate between whether it's your eating disorder saying that something doesn't feel right or whether it's yourself. If you're looking for the right professionals to help you with your recovery, the Butterfly Foundation has a referral database on their website. Go to butterfly.org.au for all the details. And if you really like to read scientific papers, there's the Journal of Eating Disorders. If you search Journal of Eating Disorders in your search engine, you should find it. Otherwise, there's a link in the show notes. The number to call for support right now is the Butterfly Helpline on 1800 334673. That's 1800-ED-HOPE. They're open from 8am till midnight, seven days a week. So if you're struggling right now and you need some help, please give them a call. You can also chat online at butterfly.org.au or email support at butterfly.org.au. Butterfly Let's Talk is produced by Icon Media for Butterfly Foundation with support from Waratah Education Foundation Limited. I'm Sam Eichen, your host and producer. Our executive producer is Camilla Beckett. We have lived experience support from Kate Mulgray and special thanks to Melissa Wilton for all the support that she gives us. Now, I'm going to ask you for a little favour. So if you could please leave us a rating and a review in the app that you're listening to this podcast to right now, we would be extremely grateful. I'm Sam Eichen. Thank you so much for your company.